This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, there are many obstacles to black American liberation. We'll speak with a young writer and activist who says one of the primary impediments to a more powerful liberation movement is the black elite, whose main goal is to prosper under capitalism. And we'll take a look at the life and work of Audre Lorde, the poet and black feminist thinker. But first, Transgender people attempting to migrate to the United States have a difficult time, especially if they're black. A young woman who goes by the name Deborah A. is a national organizer for the Black LGBTQIA Migrant Project, or BLMP for short. Deborah A. says the BLMP works through regional networks across the country. We have hubs that focus on local organizing in five different regions, New York, the Bay Area, Minnesota, and Houston. And then we also build international coalitions with working class black people from across the diaspora. Today, as a matter of fact, we're going to have a dialogue with four different queer Ghanaian organizations Folks are going to be calling in from South Africa, from Ghana, of course, and a couple other countries. And we're going to talk about what took place in January after law enforcement in Ghana raided an LGBT rights community center and lashed out against queer and trans people. But also, we helped push solidarity with queer and trans Ghanaians and really challenged the, the homophobia that was being spread by politicians, religious institutions, the media. We pushed to get as much truth and positivity about the lives of LGBTQ people so that the demands of the LGBT community could be heard. So when I say we work to challenge the strongholds of imperialism, such as homophobia, and transphobia, that's part of what I mean. You seem to put a very high priority on work against detention Mm -hmm. and deportation. Now, Mm -hmm. the immigration system was a draconian mess under President Obama and seems to have gotten much crazier under President Trump. What do you expect under a Biden regime? Biden, in our eyes, already had a regime while he was vice president of the United States for eight years and had a four-decade you know, career in politics in the U.S. government. And in that time, you know, millions of people were horrifically deported to places where they faced incarceration, persecution, and assassination. We have hard evidence of this. And we have noticed that while the talk around migrants and immigration looks different as the different administrations come in and out, the actual policies, the actual enforcement on the ground stays very much the same and, yeah, has just gotten worse over the years. So we We predict that there will be, as there was during the Obama administration, there will be a lot of lip service and a lot of things to make the detention and deportation pipeline look cleaner than before. They might clean up some of the ways that migrant detention centers look. They might clean up the ways that people have to wait at the Texas-Mexico border to get admitted through a port of entry. They might have some sorts of paint it with an airbrush moment. But at the end of the day, the only way to stop migrants from migrating and people from getting caught in the detention, the deportation pipeline is to end imperialism, to literally put a stop to all of the nasty limbs 
that imperialism has created. So ICE, Immigration Customs and Enforcement, is definitely one of those limbs. They're a multi-billion dollar organization that was created in 2003. And every year, appropriations funds them more and more. And that is funding offices, not just in the United States, but also their international bases. Integration Customs Enforcement has bases in countries all over the world, much like military bases are all over the world. So there's a lot of skepticism around Biden's administration, and we just haven't seen, I mean, it's, it hasn't even been 100 days, and thousands and thousands of black migrants have been deported to places like Haiti, where there's an uprising, to places like Cameroon, where there's a civil war, and to places like Honduras, where Garifuna people in particular are having their land stolen from them. So if that's just what's happened in, you know, 80 days or 90 days, I'm not that optimistic about the rest of the four years. Yes, the countries of Central America and the Caribbean are in trouble and not livable for millions of people because of the United States, the overthrow of Haitian democracy in 2004, the overthrow of the government in Honduras under Barack Obama, the destruction of El Salvadoran uh, society in the 1980s. All of these created uh, crises which have forced millions of people on the road north. Absolutely. I mean, in Honduras specifically, ecotourism and coastal tourism are the byproducts of the imperialist project. So you have all these developers wanting to use the coastline for their condominiums and hotels and resorts, and they are pushing out people who have lived there for hundreds of years, and that's been causing a migration upward. And a lot of times people will say, oh, it's just the natural disasters, the hurricanes and such. But there has been so much intentional pushing out of people by the U.S. and greedy governments and corporations. And, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, BLMP was working with one of our partners in Honduras, and they let us know that um, the special forces, who, mind you, were funded and trained by the U.S., and actually quite close to Biden's supervision as vice president during the Obama administration. The special forces came, were forcing people off their land, and anybody who defended that land was either assassinated. There were two people assassinated. There were people who were put in jail for usurpation of land, basically for not leaving the land. And then other people had to flee. Literally, there's people now at the Texas-Mexico border waiting to get in because two weeks ago, special forces told them they had to leave their villages from the Garifuna communities. So this is what we've been seeing intensify. And to this day, it's very much so in real time happening. Yes, so this migration north begins inside and often with people being forced off of their land or forced by economic forces out of their previous economic status. Yeah. I mean, for Honduras, historically, their constitution didn't allow foreign capital to invest in the land if it was not owned by the people of Honduras. But that constitution was rewritten, and now foreign capital is allowed to do what it wants. And in 2017, in fact, there was a law passed to give investors tax incentives to develop the coast and further displace indigenous people. So these things are not just coincidences. Folks are not leaving willingly. Migrants generally are forced to leave as a result of imperialism and, and capitalism. And your organization, BLMP, has inaugurated a queer black migrant survey. How do you conduct this survey? What are you looking for? And what have you found? Yeah, we're asking all queer, trans, black migrants and first-generation folks to fill out our survey and help us understand better what their interactions with law enforcement, their interactions with both police and ICE, 
have looked like in their time in this country, whether they've been here for a year or it was their parents who were immigrants and they were actually born in the U.S. And we're trying to understand these specific connections to imperialism and capitalism. So each person's story can help us better understand the map of imperialism. So if we, you know, have somebody fill out the survey and they are from, you know, Cameroon, we can understand that if they've come in the last, you know, five years in particular, it may have been because of the civil war between the Anglophone and Francophone communities that has displaced thousands and thousands of people also due to imperialism. Or, for example, with queer and trans folks, a lot of the time, our home countries, be it Jamaica, be it Nigeria, Ghana, places that have been colonized previously, we saw that a lot of these countries had penal codes that were inherited from the criminal codes of their colonizer. They didn't change anything after independence. They kind of just said copy-paste. And to this day, they use it as an excuse to attack and harm and displace queer and trans people. Yesterday, we had a press conference with refugees who live in a refugee camp in Kenya. Um, It's called Kakuma Kenya. They're specifically Block 13, and it's a group of 100-plus LGBTQ people who've been displaced from Uganda, some from Kenya, and other countries. And they're all in this camp together because they can't live wherever they are because of how they identify and who they love. That pushes people into these refugee camps. And yesterday what we were talking about were the two attacks that they suffered recently at the camp. You just had vigilantes set a whole camp of people aflame on March 15th of this year and also June 19th of last year. Dozens of people were hurt. Two in particular were airlifted to the only hospital in Kenya that could really help severe burn victims. So this goes to show that, yes, LGBTQ people are specifically being targeted, attacked, wiped out. And it isn't just because, as many people like to believe, gayness, queerness, transness is anti-African. It's because imperialist policies have been inherited. It is because American and other Western missionaries insisted on teaching homophobia, spreading homophobia and transphobia in our homelands, and that's causing displacement. And that's what our survey is hoping to better understand and map out. BLMP has had some victories here in the United States. Tell us about the Free Jaja campaign. Yeah, I would love to. Something that's really important to understand when talking about the campaign to free Zaza is that the U.S. has something called crimigration. That's obviously criminal immigration, and it's the collusion between local law enforcement and ICE. And it is that collusion that specifically Black migrants are constantly surveilled by that caused Zaza to be put in a local jail in Philadelphia for possession of marijuana years and years and years ago. Zaza is a trans-Jamaican woman who, after being incarcerated in Philadelphia, was transferred over into Immigration Customs Enforcement custody. They then proceeded to remove her from the country, so she was deported to Jamaica. Then she she knew she had to come back because Jamaica was not, in fact, safe for her to stay in. She was attacked. She had family members attacked for supporting her. And so she made her journey back to the U.S. And once she came back, she was detained for another four or five years. And she basically lost a decade of her life because of the crimigration system. She was let out last October after almost five years of detention for the second time. And yeah, it's all this because, you know, she really could not live, first of all, in a country where her life was threatened and her gender was not affirmed. But then 
to come here and be behind bars again, it just highlights what we talk about when we share just how targeted Black, queer, and trans migrants really are. But the campaign to free her was successful. She was let out last year on an ankle monitor because of some advocacy. The ankle monitor was also removed. But now we still see ICE essentially monitoring her on a phone, which is bizarre because she actually won her asylum case, which means she has the right, the legal right to be in the country. So ICE should now have no interest in or jurisdiction over her autonomy. However, she has been having to respond to them every week. They'll call her at random hours of the day. They'll make her check in on on the phone to show that she is where she said she was going to be. And so we see this sort of transition from detention to e-incarceration. She said in a lot of ways she still feels like she's being detained. And her time in detention is worth noting. She spent a great deal of time in solitary confinement because the detention center said they didn't want to place her. Well, she was placed with the men and then they were like, fine, we'll put you in solitary. So she spent, you know, almost a year in solitary confinement, all for migrating and trying to, you know, save her life. So that's the the reality of how we can easily be forced into vulnerable interactions with law enforcement. That was Deborah A. of the Black LGBTQIA plus Migrant Project. It's bad enough that black liberation movements have always encountered massive white American hostility, but elite sectors of black America have often opposed mass black street action. Kendist Mallet is a columnist for Teen Vogue magazine. She's author of a recent column titled, The Black Elite Are an Obstacle Toward Black Liberation. We've seen either like the elite in a sense of just like rich black people being able to like say, oh, you should vote for this person or condemning things that have happened um, in the uprising. I think just like overall, when it comes down to capitalism, like black capitalists and black wealthy class will always side with the capitalists over the actual needs of the people. And I believe strongly if we want to have black liberation, we also have to abolish capitalism to do that. Yes, but haven't the black elite long been an obstacle to black liberation. Those of us who were aware in the late 60s saw that many of these black elites couldn't wait for the movement to be wound down. They were calling for folks to get out of the streets and get into the suites. No, definitely. That's why I was just saying, like, um, for what I have just experienced with my time being involved in things, but, you know, I think if you look at the NAACP since its inception and just sort of like how it's always sort of viewed um, the various uprisings that have happened, whether it was Watts in the 60s, there's always been sort of this elite power structure that has looked down on uprisings and who have played the role for, you know, white America to sort of be like, okay, calm down and pretend like they're a part of it and kind of like, move it more into like a liberal pro-democratic or just pro-establishment wing or view. Yes, you call for movements to have a deeper class analysis and a more profound critique of the capitalists who live right within our own community. Yeah, definitely. I think overall, my fear is, especially when we look at Black Lives Matter and all that's unfolding with that right now, that it's important for us to have like a class analysis and to recognize that, you know, capitalism is just as much as a threat to our communities as white supremacy and that it's not going to be, you know, just buying black or sort of using black entrepreneurship as a way towards liberation. That's just not going to work. Black Lives Matter itself, or at least the folks who invented the hashtag Black Lives Matter, not so long ago, declared that they had collected $90 million in philanthropic and corporate dollars. Yeah, and I mean, that's a whole mess, because there's lots of interesting elements there, because 
at one point, you know, and what we saw over the summer was you just saw people donating to BLM and encouraging people to donate to BLM and really not knowing what that meant. Like there was this association like, oh, well, by donating to BLM, we're donating to the people on the streets, but there's not a relationship there, right? So for like the past six, seven years, BLM has been able to just sort of co-op anything that has been black resistance. And whenever there's like a danger that things are getting too out of control, then everyone kind of like just focuses and shifts and, you know, donates to BLM. And we're seeing they got $90 million and now people are asking like, where is that money going? What are you doing with that? How have you been supporting people? Because there's people still in jail from the uprising, which that organization directly benefited from who haven't had legal support. And so it's like, you have $90 million. Why is that not in the hands of the people who need it? And especially the people who are active over the summer. Yes, of course. It did not go to the people who've been incarcerated. BLM said that they had spent $8 million in the past year, but that went to all kinds of headquarters type of expenses, but not towards getting people out of jail. Yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, And I think that's the danger of having centralized power, having this sort of brand to be able to be seen as some sort of leadership when it's like, who announced them as the leader of these movements? And so I think, yeah, it's good that people are now asking about transparency and stuff, but I think it's important for BLM to be deplatformed. And I know that people on the ground have been trying to do that. The hashtag kind of took off and became an organization. And so I think it's really the struggle now with kind of like media because media is the one that kind of keeps giving them the awards, keeps giving them the you know magazine covers and the profiles. So it's like now it's you know, I think that it's going to be really strong to try to deplatform them from being able to continue to. Ninety million dollars is an indication that Black Lives Matter has been accepted and welcomed as not threatening by a significant part of the ruling class. Definitely. And I think we also saw that with various members either like encouraging voter turnout or encouraging people to donate to certain candidates. Yeah, I think BLM on different streaming networks, they had, oh, you know, Black Voices Matter, Black Lives Matter. And I mean, it's a brand now, it's an entity. And I feel like when people look at BLM, they should look at it in the same way as a corporation, as a business. And it is very divorced from what is actually happening to people who are organizing on the ground or who have been a part of these uprisings. It's a very separate world. And so that $90 million shows the disconnection. In terms of a class analysis of the Black community and the motivations of those who would declare themselves to be the leadership, there's plenty of resources historically in the Black community to draw on. And you don't have to do it with Black Panthers. Malcolm X himself was making a political analysis when he talked about the House Negro and the Field Negro. Yeah, I think there is sort of this reckoning that has long been happening and needs to continue to happen amongst Black community when we talk about what we want and and even the we, right? Like this idea of like Black solidarity, it's like, well, I'm not in solidarity with Black capitalists. You know, I want solidarity with Black anti-capitalists and sort of recognizing that that the struggle is definitely going to be as much about white supremacy, patriarchy, it's going to also be about capitalism. Yes, and we had leading lights like Ava DuVernay, who said that if Black folks didn't work hard enough to defeat Trump, meaning elect a Democrat, then they deserve what happens to us under Trump. In other words, directing Black folks to a kind of binary politics in which we support one rich white folks political entity or the other. Yeah, and um, that was very upsetting to see that, especially from someone who like that's the thing too. Trump being in office for, you know, the very wealthy, like didn't it like benefited them, right? And so they weren't impacted in the same way that 
poor struggling black people were. And so for her, who's like a millionaire to be saying like, you deserve what you get if you don't vote for Biden, is very insulting, especially as we see, you know, how he, I mean, we already knew what he was going to be as president, but as he continues to kind of show himself and, you know, his anti-blackness, whether it be with how he's deporting Haitians and what his attitude has been towards black people in general, is infuriating. Yes, Trump's anti-blackness, which was self-evident, does not mean that Democrats are pro-black, even if they are black. Yeah, not at all. In a way, I felt like Trump coming into office kind of, it brought us back down in a way, like any momentum of cultural or political critique that was happening because of all the social unrest that was happening in 2014 to 2016 under Obama, like under Trump, it just got all kind of wiped as like anti-Trumpism. And so like the sort of understanding that, no, Democrats, remember Black Lives Matter, all the uprisings that happened under Obama first, like, you know, just because it's a Black person in office, that doesn't mean anything. Anti-Blackness also is internalized. So I think we sort of, the analysis on thinking that just because black person a Democrat means anything for us, I think is kind of hopefully it continues to be deconstructed as we see a vice president in office as a black woman. But you know, I'm somewhat optimistic. Up to now, I believe it's 16 Black Lives Matter chapters uh, have disassociated themselves from the hashtag folks. And I don't think all of it's because they're disappointed they didn't get any money, but that they see there is a different politics at work. And I've got to say that I haven't heard as much anti-capitalist rhetoric, at least, from young Black activists in 20 or 30 years. Yeah, you know, it's hard, like, even just being able to have, you know, like, I'm fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to write about what I want and, like, a platform that I have, but being Black and being anti-capitalist and being able to get opportunities to speak on that is hard because, you know, usually if you're given the opportunity to speak, they want you to speak a certain way, and they usually want you to just be, like, a Black liberal, you know, with maybe slight criticisms of, like, the government or capitalism, but, like, to be full anti-capitalism, like, ooh, that's too scary. And so I do think there are lots of young Black anti-capitalists. So what's your prognosis in terms of the Black movement? Do you think we'll have another summer with millions in the streets? Um, I don't know. It's kind of hard because I want to say, I mean, yeah, it's, like, impossible to answer that, but, like, just going off that, I would say, you know, people might not necessarily want to protest in the same way they did last year just because it's the first summer people might be getting their vaccinations and they may not be feeling that kind of energy but i would hope that people still would especially like given how the you know government still has failed to actually adequately respond to you know this pandemic and black people have been impacted the most and so i hope people are still out there in the streets you know last night in Echo Park, there was a housing encampment that basically was raided on by LAPD, and people went out and tried to push back against it to save it. And so I think how the housing crisis and as moratoriums on rent start to end, I think we're going to start to see clashes on that. So if the government keeps failing in the way that they do, I'm sure people are going to respond to that. Yes, when the epidemic is closer to over than it is now, uh, people will have a real window to look back on what they've lost and how they've been harmed and how they've been insulted by those who rule. Yeah, I mean, especially I think as, you know, we'll start to see more investigations and stuff about who benefited financially from this and, and all the different ways that corruption has happened. And, you know, we're hearing that, like, pharmaceutical companies are going to want to increase the prices of the vaccine. And then, you know, even just from, like, a global perspective, Black people, like, we should be upset about the lack of vaccination access that's being happening to the Black diaspora globally. So I think there's a lot for people to be upset about. And I think it'll be probably, like, a slow burn, but I think we'll see people 
getting upset and wanting to respond to that. That was writer and activist Candice Mallet. Jack Turner is a professor of political science at the University of Washington and co-editor of the book African American Political Thought, A Collected History. Turner's contribution to that collection is a chapter titled Audre Lorde's Politics of Difference. It's a rich subject. Audre Lorde was an important black poetic and feminist luminary who was New York State Poet Laureate in the last years of her life. Professor Turner says Lorde clashed directly with President Reagan when the U.S. invaded the Caribbean nation of Grenada in 1983. Grenada was her parents' birthplace. Her parents emigrated from Grenada to the United States in 1924. And Audre Lorde was born in Harlem in 1934. And she made two visits to Grenada, which she called a return to the land of her forbearing mothers. The first was in 1978. And she, during that trip, she revisited some of her extended family, including her mother's sister, Sister Lou. She also went to various landmarks in her family history and really got a sense of the island for the first time, which became very sort of integral to her identity. So then when the invasion happens in October 1983, she is seared by it as she's watching it from U.S. shores, as she's watching it from New York. And she visits the second time in December of 1983 after U.S. troops have withdrawn. And in the aftermath of that trip, she does her major writings on the Grenada invasion, the first being Grenada Revisited, which was published in April 1984 in Off Our Back, a women's journal in Washington, D.C. And then it was reprinted in Sister Outsider. It was snuck into the book at the last minute as it went to press. And so it appears there today. And I think the reason why it's sort of important for students of Audre Lorde uh, for two reasons. First, it's, I think, her most interesting and extended foray into a critique of U.S. foreign policy. We see that elsewhere in her work. We see that in some of her writings on South Africa. But here we get, you know, a much more intimate microscopic analysis and of the invasion of a country that was integral to her own identity. It was the, the birthplace of her parents. It was a home of much extended family. And so for that reason, it's important. But also, I think more than anything, you know, in terms of understanding Lord's politics, I think that it's in Grenada Revisited that we really see her economic philosophy, which was a socialist economic philosophy. She has much praise for the mutual movement. She's particularly inspired by the leadership of Maurice Bishop. And she believes that the transformations that are going on in Grenada, though imperfect, she acknowledges, they are making a much more egalitarian society and they're effectively decolonizing Grenada in a way that had never been achieved before. Lord also wrote a poem with a Grenada theme that examined the mindset and the morals of black folks that joined in the American imperial enterprise. That's correct, and she wrote it at the same time. The poem was entitled Equal Opportunity, and she wrote it in the spring of 1984. And one of the things that I discover in the course of the research for this article is around that time, she met with a number of prominent women of color in Washington, D.C., who were leaders in activism and government. And one of them was a woman by the name of Donna M. Alvarado, who was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Equal Opportunity and Safety Policy. And after a meeting with Alvarado, it inspired her to write a poem from the point of view of a woman of color cooperating with the Grenada invasion from inside the Pentagon. She takes some poetic liberties. Donna Alvarado, Reagan's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Equal Opportunity and Safety Policy, was Mexican-American or identified as a Mexican-American. The figure in Ward's poem is black. 
Alvarado was a civilian. The figure in the poem was a woman in uniform. And so though she takes poetic liberties with, the evidence suggests it was definitely based on Alvarado. And so she uses this in order to sort of figure out what are the dilemmas that face a U.S. woman of color inside the U.S. military-industrial establishment when they are asked to go to imperial war. And she works through those dilemmas and has a fairly critical view of them in the poem. Well, an anti-imperialist stance among black activists was quite common, of course, back in the 60s and well-developed in the 70s, but has since disappeared from some arenas of black political discourse, including some parts of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I mean, one thing that I think that sort of Lord makes clear is there's division within U.S. Black communities over to what extent Black citizen subjects should become identified with a nation and with the nation's imperial projects, or to what extent to assume an outsider identity and to take a militant stance against those imperial projects. When I was in graduate school, I studied with Cornell West right at the time that he wrote Democracy Matters. And so I was exposed pretty early on to a very sort of strong anti-imperial black political thought. At the same time, you're right that, you know, within sort of U.S. black history, there's also a strong tradition of black folks yoking their fates to that of the American military in order to advance citizenship claims within the U.S. national project. And that's one of the tensions that Lord is exploring in this work. In terms of Audrey Lord's defense of the government in Grenada that was overthrown, you say that it's not surprising uh, that she was sympathetic to Marxism, of course, but what was surprising or what stood out was that she was not afraid or not hesitant to critique the actual Soviet Union. Absolutely. One of the things that I most admire about Lord is I think she had a critical sympathy with Marxism. I think that she firmly believed in the idea of equality of life and equality of freedom. And she had greater doubts about ideas of individual property rights. And so she had many intellectual commitments that are sort of consistent with Marxism. And at the same time, when she visits the Soviet Union, I believe in 1976 and 77 for a writer's conference, she's very upfront that she does see class stratification in the Soviet Union. She's also very upfront that she sees other forms of inequality. She's very upfront that while she did not personally see gulags or any other sorts of evidence of unfreedom, she has no doubt that those spaces exist within the Soviet Union. But what impressed her about the Soviet Union was no one was in economic misery, according to Lord. And so she was able to provide a mixed assessment of the Soviet Union as making an advance toward a better humanism, while at the same time keeping the flaws of the Soviet Union in view. And in her view of Grenada, what I think what excites her about Maurice Bishop and the Mutual Movement was the way in which they were not only improving people's economic lives, but also enlisting their participation, their participation in rebuilding a more egalitarian economy, their participation in creating farming collectives, fishing collectives, their participation in a national literacy programs. And so this, there was a sense of national world building going on under the mutual movement and under Maurice Bishop that excited her. So in addition to there being increases in economic quality of life under Bishop, she also saw increases in political and creative activity, which greatly inspired her. Yes, Audrey Lord was excited about the Grenadian Revolution, and she said that the U.S. government was very afraid that lots of other black people would get excited about Grenada because Grenadians spoke English and they were from this yes. hemisphere. 
Yes, that's a point that Maurice Bishop made. He made that in his speech at Hunter College, University of New York, in, in June of 1983, that the Reagan government was afraid of a successful socialist revolution occurring in not just a black country, but a black English-speaking country, that that could be very inspiring to black folks in the United States and could inspire resistance to the economic status quo. And Lord amplified that point. She amplified that point in Grenada Revisited in the, the essay. And she you know, really started to see how the Grenada Revolution could inspire a more transnational Black revolutionary presence within the Western Hemisphere. And as a result of that, she saw how they became a deep threat to the U.S. state and ultimately requiring their destruction in the eyes of the U.S. state. In terms of politics and poetry, who do you think today is the closest heir uh, to Audre Lorde and her generation? Um, I just think there are a number of ways in which Lorde is singular. First off, we have to understand her very particular position of marginalization. Being a Black lesbian marginalized from the Black freedom movement by virtue of her identity as a woman and her identity as a lesbian, her marginalization from the second wave feminist movement by virtue of her identity as a Black person and her identity as a lesbian, her marginalization from the gay and lesbian a liberation movement by virtue of her identity as a black person. So she was marginalized from virtually every community, every social movement that affected her. What that sort of resulted in, on the one hand, you know, the sort of one of the conventional readings of Lord is that she's sort of a, a foremother of intersectionality and that she could see how intersecting marginalized identities could result in intersecting impressions. But it also, in addition to making her a foremother of intersectionality, which she absolutely is, there's no question about it, she also has this intellectual renegade quality where she believes that social movements are necessary, she believes that solidarity is necessary, but she also believes that we need to be suspicious of all group formations in some respect because they all have the potential for internal policing and oppression within them. And so I think that particular sensibility that can reconcile, on the one hand, a commitment to strong forms of political solidarity, on the other hand, a suspicion, a salutary suspicion of those forms of solidarity on, and of the ways in which they themselves can become oppressive. Her ability to hold those contradictory thoughts in her mind, I think it makes her especially unique. And I think it's, it's very difficult to identify who her rightful heir is. There's one point about the Grenada invasion that I discovered in the research that didn't make it into the article. And that is that in the weeks prior to the Grenada invasion, in head-to-head matchups between Mondale and Reagan in the Gallup poll, Mondale was leading. For much of 1983, he was leading by five to six points in the Gallup poll. And there was a lot of speculation that Mondale was going to defeat Reagan in the 1984 election. It's in the week of the Grenada invasion that Reagan pulls even with Mondale and then surpasses him in the head-to-head tracking poll. And he never loses that lead all the way up to November 1984. So one of the things I think it's really important to understand is that the Grenada invasion, it's not simply a interesting episode in the history of Western Hemisphere Black politics, but it's also a crucial episode in the history of the U.S. state itself because the destruction of the Grenada invasion helped propel Ronald Reagan to re-election in 1984 and to the ascendancy of Reaganism. So one thing I think it's really important to understand about Grenada is that it was a turning point in Reaganism's ascendancy, and therefore it, it merits our close study. Professor Jack Turner, speaking from the University of Washington. With U.S. media describing the past 12 months as the worst year ever, imagine if you were locked up in even closer confines, with no defense against COVID-19 for a solid year. Long-term Pennsylvania prison inmate Sergio Highland filed this report for Prison Radio. 
as prisoners approach a full year of being on an enhanced lockdown, we still find it difficult to galvanize enough public support to make critical and necessary changes to PADOC policy. This lockdown has put the prison system's unwritten policy of inhumanity on full display, once again proving that the true purpose of prison is to torture human beings. People often ask me why I choose to use prison radio to voice my concerns. It's a legitimate question. After all, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections has a grievance system, and if that doesn't work, prisoners have the ability to challenge our conditions in court. The problem with these processes is that they don't work. They're all smoke and mirrors, simple measures of reform put in place to keep prisoners in a disadvantaged position. Therefore, when it comes to prisoners' rights, our only real hope is for public involvement. However, prison officials have always countered our claims of abuse with their own claims of self-righteousness. They claim that we're just a bunch of unhappy convicted criminals who don't like following the rules. And because the public is conditioned to believe so-called law enforcement, these false statements of prison officials are rarely challenged. The mainstream media, whose job it is to report facts, seem to be noticeably quiet on the topic of human rights abuses in prison. On the rare occasion that they do report on prison issues, it's because the violation is so egregious that it can't be ignored. Let's face it, the sad reality is that society is seasoned to think of prisoners as little more than liars and complainers. This is why prison radio was so important and necessary. It's an on-the-record, first-hand account of what's taking place on the inside of prisons. And if you do a thorough investigation of the claims made by prisoners on prison radio, you will undoubtedly see that these claims are not lacking in validity. As prison officials and their co-conspirators in the mainstream media would like you to believe. For example, since this pandemic has begun, Prisoners have been attempting to expose the negligence and dangerous measures being implemented by the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, specifically John Wetzel and his team of cover-up artists. Journalists on the inside have bravely reported on the increasing number of COVID-19 infections and deaths. However, those reports have been consistently attacked and denied by DOC officials. Time and again, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections has directed their spokespersons to feed knowingly false information to the public. A recent report by Spotlight PA has exposed how John Wetzel and the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections has been manipulating the numbers of prisoner infections and deaths. When confronted by the report, Wetzel accepted responsibility but still blamed others. This report noted that the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections has been double-counting tests given the appearance that widespread testing is taking place on the inside of Pennsylvania prisons. The report also exposes how deaths among prisoners and staff are often documented but later removed, causing some to wonder if there's really something to hide. Of course, these curious maneuvers aren't so curious to prisoners and our supporters and loved ones. The Human Rights Coalition, the Coalition Against Death by Incarceration, Decarcerate Pennsylvania, and other organizations have been making these claims from the very beginning. No public outcry followed. This report underscores the urgent need to release vulnerable prisoners. Some critics claim that even in the midst of a deadly pandemic, prisoners are among society's safest demographic. Spotlight PAs and the Pennsylvania DOC's own reporting says otherwise. For example, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections has reported over 13,000 positive cases of COVID-19 within its 24 state prisons. With a population of only about 45,000 prisoners, the infection rate is a staggering 30%, clearly confuting any bizarre claim that a prison environment is safer than a home environment. This issue doesn't only affect prisoners. Staff, too, are growing wary of John Wetzel and his mishandling of this crisis. At this point, I must ask the question, if the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections would so blatantly lie about the handling of COVID-19, can you imagine what else they lie about due to their audacious presumption that the public will accept whatever they say? 
this, fellow listeners, is why prison radio is as vital to society as the oxygen one needs to breathe. The hard truth is that prisoners have no real recourse. When violated, our best and only option is to report that violation to the violator and hope that he or she holds themselves accountable. A dream scenario which has never once happened in the history of relationships between the oppressor and the oppressed. I strongly encourage all of you to urge your family and friends to tune into prison radio more regularly so that they can listen to journalists on the inside give true and up-to-date accounts of what we're up against. This is our version of the mainstream media. This is who we trust to represent the real concerns of people on the inside of prisons. You don't have to take my word for anything. Do your own research. But in your journey to find the truth, if your moral compass tells you that everything you thought you knew was wrong, I hope that you find the courage and fortitude to then do what is right. Thank you for listening. I'm Uptown Surge, and you can follow me on Instagram at Uptown Surge. And here's another report from a prison radio correspondent, Tabitha Maynard, incarcerated in Michigan. My name is Tabitha. I am 20 years into a 24-year sentence for second-degree murder and weapons felony. Crowded in at Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility in Ypsilanti, Michigan, the only women's state prison in Michigan. Now, the powers that be will say we are not overcrowded at all. That, in fact, Michigan now has the lowest prison population it has had in three decades. Which is true. We are no longer stacked on top of each other in every old office, closet, and storage room they could pack multiple bunk beds into. But what they will not tell you is that we are still over twice the amount of women in this facility that it was originally designed and built to hold. Which brings me to the parole process. First, as a nation, we lock up way too many of our own citizens. We have criminalized being poor, mentally ill, and a minority. We have created laws that specifically target these groups and turn them into the only legal slaves our Constitution still allows. The prison systems of our nation are big billion-dollar organizations, of which many businesses profit off the backs of these legal slaves and your taxpayer dollars. Along those lines, from my behind-the-scenes perspective, and the perspective of many of the frontline staff members. Once someone is caught in this system, the parole process seems set on mainly releasing only those that are almost guaranteed to come right back to prison. If someone is actively using drugs, stealing, fighting, and generally still stuck in criminal and addictive mindset, have no safe home to go to, have no way to legally support themselves, they will probably be released over and over and over again. Because if they are not back in prison within the year, it is because they have died from an overdose or been killed. On the other hand, if you are someone that has done everything possible to better yourself, have a safe home with supportive family and even jobs waiting for you, in a few cases, the convicting judges and even the victims of the crime are asking for and supporting your release, well, those are the ones not likely to ever be given a single opportunity to show their rehabilitation. Because if they release those people to be productive citizens, they will lose them as slaves, the backbones of the prison system. Thank you for listening. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation. Information. 